So artists from around the world who are struggling with colonialism can see a bit of themselves reflected in its rhetoric. And at the same time, there is an international movement of Marxism and artists looking to find their way in relationship to various debates about art and politics. And surrealism very explicitly offers itself as a language for artists to think about some of those things. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. So if someone in a trench coat who was smoking a pipe and had a gigantic eyeball for a head were to approach you on the street one particularly sunny night and ask you what surrealism was, you'd probably answer by throwing out a few names. Dali, Magritte, Man Ray, Frida Kahlo. And of course, you wouldn't be wrong. But what if this strange interlocutor were to tell you that what you know about surrealism is in fact just the very tip of the iceberg and that this lastingly popular movement in fact stretched far beyond Paris, far beyond Europe, to every corner of the world, and to countless fascinating artists you had never heard of before. That, in a sense, is exactly what an extraordinary and frankly revelatory exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art is doing right now. Called Surrealism Beyond Borders, the exhibition, organized by Met curator Stephanie D'Alessandro, together with Tate Modern curator Matthew Gale, and closing at the end of this month, makes it plain that the riveting story of surrealism has hardly begun to be told and that its lessons are almost shockingly relevant to a lot of the biggest debates of our present day. So what should you know about the show? And how does it change what we know about surrealism? To find out, I'm very happy to have Artnet News Chief Art Critic Ben Davis back on The Art Angle today. Thanks for coming on the show, Ben. Yeah, really excited to be here to talk about this really interesting show. So we both spent a lot of time with Surrealism Beyond Borders over the past few days. One thing that impressed me the most about the show is how little I actually know about probably the most famous art movement of modern times, Surrealism. So what was your reaction to the show? Well, this is the kind of show that, you know, if you're an art lover, this is like a giant present because it really is just a bouquet of exciting new leads to explore in the mystery of figuring out art history, or what is to me a mystery, I guess. I mean, this show is packed with stories. It has within it, you know, what some people would probably think of when they hear the word surrealism. It has some of those works in it. You know, it has Rene Magritte's Time Transfixed. It has Salvador Dali's Soft Construction with Boiled Beans. It has Dorothy Tanning's A Little Night Music. But these are installed so that you really do see them as just beats within this much larger international movement of surrealism, of call and response, different artists translating the ideas of surrealism in different ways. And I would even say that those being the most famous images of surrealism, you really do see the kind of Magritte Dali picture of surrealism, which is this very academic realist kind of painting turned against itself. And you really see that as almost like an eccentric case within the larger pulse of energy of surrealism. That's what really stood out to me, that when you, when you step back from those familiar reference points, the mainstream of surrealism looks much different and, and what it means to be surreal seems much different. So one of the really stated objectives of this show is to explode the traditional received story of surrealism. So just to refresh 
everybody's memories. What is the traditional story of surrealism that we all learn about in school? Well, this is a particular Euro-American story. So surrealism is one of the big isms, right? You know, there's Cubism, Impressionism, Dadaism, and then surrealism. And there's a very famous chart that Alfred Barr, the first director of MoMA, made when modernism was first becoming canonized in the United States. And it tracks the relationship between all these different isms in the European-American trajectory of art. And there at the bottom uh, left is surrealism. And the way he leaves the story is surrealism evolves and inspires non-geometric abstract art. So the story of art as told from the sort of standard, now pretty antiquated post-war history of art was that the European avant-garde experimented with art in all these cool ways and unleashed all these different energies that became U.S.-type abstraction in painting and that form this kind of neat narrative of art. And so this show, I don't think, you know, negates that. Like, that's a real trajectory of history, the Paris to New York kind of axis. But it just, you know, if you were to take that chart, you'd have to um, open it up in some kind of like 10-dimensional way because the arrows leading from surrealism point in all these different directions towards all these different geographies. And so, yeah, this classical surrealism, which, you know, Apollinaire, the poet, famously coined in 1917 and that was really built around this idea of automatic creation, psychic automatism in its pure state that is seen as kind of living its life and dying out and becoming ab X. What do we learn is not accurate about that? Well, I mean, that happened. I mean, I think that, you know, you look at a lot of the American abstractionists were really inspired by surrealism and automatism and benefited from the various refugees from Europe from the Second World War. But this show, you know, it's as if you'd only have one piece of a wallpaper and you pull back and you suddenly realize that that's just a detail of a much, much larger pattern with all these interesting intersections of lines and forms and figures that form all kinds of different configurations. So it's more like there are a bunch of different histories that run not even in parallel lines, but intersecting, interweaving lines. And this is part of a much larger project, a much larger thing that's going on in art history. I think in our very first talk on this podcast a few years ago, we talked about the rehang in MoMA and how they were trying to incorporate all these different geographies. I think one of the really exciting things about the present is that the entry of other art histories that haven't been taken as seriously, because there is all this really interesting scholarship, really interesting intellectual work that's gone into bringing to light and making accessible the really interesting and fascinating cross-currents of modern art. You know, this show ranges from the 20s all the way up to the 60s, I think. And so when you think about this first half of the century, you think of this global map that is pretty much defined by imperial powers, by colonial regimes. And it's one of oppression writ large in a, in a major way. It's also one of the beginnings of some kinds of interchange and communication in this, you know, modernizing kind of historical moment. And so what did we learn from this show about how surrealism kind of played out on this globe? How was it disseminated? How did it leave the notebooks and salons of Paris to become something that played out, you know, in, in every corner of the globe? Well, 
I don't think there's one story of that. You know, it played out the way things tend to play out in this era in uh, small publications and manifestos and in sort of entrepreneurial groups of intellectuals in dialogue with each other. This is a point I'd like to make that although this is a very international and pluralistic show, there are commonalities across geographies in terms of these are cosmopolitan people in general. They draw on a certain kind of demographic of person who tend to be moving across geographies or in correspondence across geographies. The thing that I find most fascinating to draw out from the show is that, you know, the question of why surrealism specifically was attractive as a method and an idea to such a wide range of people, with the 1930s really being the period of its biggest dissemination. And the show argues, and I think is true, partly because there is a kind of a politics to the rhetoric of surrealism that maybe the mainstream public isn't so familiar with. Paris surrealism grew out of Dada, which grew out of the tremendous calamity of the First World War. And it was this kind of nihilistic reaction to this. And then surrealism, as it developed out of that and went beyond it, did become much more political and even affiliated with communism. So the 20s and the 30s are internationally characterized by the fallout from the First World War and the Russian Revolution and artists being really interested and inspired by the example of the Russian Revolution and then the Great Depression and the extreme forms of politics that came out of that in the lead up to World War II. And one of the things I think is interesting just to think about is like, why would surrealism be so interesting to people in this time period Surrealism in its rhetoric and to a certain extent its practice provided a kind of language of radicalism that artists around the world could latch onto. Grew out of a disgust with kind of European culture that pretenses to be this holy civilizing thing, but the culture that had produced it had also produced the carnage of World War One. The surrealists were wacky in many ways, but they also, as time went on, became more and more anti-imperial in their rhetoric. You know, in 1924, the same year as the first Surrealist Manifesto, France uh, engages in a colonial war in Morocco, and the Surrealists were unique amongst French intellectuals at the time in being pretty outspoken against that. You know, there's one statement from them where they say, say, we fervently hope that wars and colonial insurrections will annihilate this Western civilization. So artists from around the world who are struggling with colonialism can see a bit of themselves reflected in its rhetoric. And at the same time, there is an international movement of Marxism and artists looking to find their way in relationship to various debates about art and politics. And surrealism very explicitly offers itself as a language for artists to think about some of those things. And it's internationalist. I mean, it's explicitly an internationalist thing. There's a, you know, there's a musing, there's an office, there's a surrealist bureau that's set up in Paris. News from surrealist cells around the world is getting set up and then they're in communication really widely around the world very consciously thinking about themselves as a movement. I thought that was so fascinating in the incredible catalog that was produced in conjunction with the show, where they talk about how there was a brief flirtation between organized communism and surrealism. And it seemed like they were both overthrowing the current regime. But then the communists started to become aware that the surrealists were not in favor of any regime, even a communist party line. And so they wouldn't be reliable. And the surrealists kind of very defiantly said the only regime or the only objective of the surrealist movement is to find that space between dreams and reality, life and death, etc. It was just totally 
divorced from any kind of ideology. They were anarchists, is what the communists would say them. You know, for all their rhetoric of, you know, revolution, they, they were anarchists. They were for the individual, individual liberty over collective struggle. And it seems like this really resonated in pockets of strife or conflict around the world. And I, one, one area that I really was surprised about was Egypt and this incredibly fertile Egyptian surrealism. So what does this show teach us about that? Egypt is a good opportunity for me to nuance what I said before about surrealism and communism, because the 1930s are this huge revolutionary time. You got to remember that there is stock market crash in 1929, incredible hardship that is felt internationally in the colonial center and in the colonies. And one of the things that this means, the advent of world economic crisis, is a turn to nationalism everywhere. There's a turn to nationalism amongst um, the former combatants of World War I, who um, try to make their economies more autarkic and begin a race for resources. That puts more pressure on their colonies, and then that produces a counterpressure towards nationalism in the colonies. It's also the time of the evident degeneration of the Soviet Union. You know, it was very turbulent throughout the 20s. By the 1930s, clearly, the international communist parties are now putting this very specific pressure on artists to produce proletarian art. And that is felt around the world. And there's a battle within Russian communism that Stalin wins. Leon Trotsky, who's a distant, is exiled eventually to Mexico. And in 1938, Andre Breton, the Pope of Surrealism, who started out as a medical student and worked with shell shock victims, visits him. And they produce what's really kind of the third Surrealist manifesto, which is called Towards a Free Revolutionary Art, that's co-signed by Diego Rivera, which is basically against the backdrop of nationalism, militarism, and war, and the degeneration of aesthetics both in um, the capitalist countries and in the Soviet Union, they basically make an argument that the real revolutionary art is free. You can't dictate what it should be. So it tries to make an alliance between the idea of artistic freedom and radical politics that avoids the traps of proletarian realism or social realism, which are the mainstream left styles throughout the world. So for artists all over the world who are trying to find a way through these things, like trying to be in touch with the kind of radical energies of their times, but are also feeling the strictures of the official kinds of leftist art, Breton and Surrealism very clearly offer this other way, you know? Whether Trotsky was actually co-signing Surrealism as a political movement, I, I don't really think so, but he gives his imprimatur to Surrealism to a certain extent, and because of the prestige of the Russian Revolution, because of the prestige of his example, all over the world, people see the kind of ideas of surrealism as representing this kind of way through dreams and through symbols to represent a radical reality takes on a certain kind of residence, including in Egypt. So what happened in Egypt? Well, this group called Art and Liberty, which is surrealist affiliated, it's actually not particularly well known by me, but it's gotten a lot of new art and historical attention. I believe in the late 30s, uh, Marinetti, the poet of futurism, visits Egypt to give a speech. He's received as a cultural dignitary. But Marinetti is well known by now, both for having created, written the Futurist Manifesto, which one of the first big ism manifestos that proposed art as a sort of uh, form of transformative political process. 
But he's also, by this time, pretty associated with Mussolini and fascism. And Italy is in the process of kind of exerting itself as a colonial power in Africa. And so some of the artists who become associated with Egyptian surrealism or the uh, art and liberty group protest, led by Georges Henan, who's kind of the ringleader of this group. And that sort of coalesces this new current of energy around them. So right at the beginning, it's, there's this linking of politics and art. And then they issue a manifesto called Long Live Degenerate Art. And that's a very clear reference to the Degenerate Art Show in Germany, which shows how people are really involved in watching international developments where the Nazis had um, claimed they were for traditional values and against decadent art and had toured the famous modernist artists, the Dadaists, the Expressionists, and so on, around Germany, um, holding it up as an example of what they called cultural Bolshevism, the equivalent in art of degenerate, left-wing, communist, anti-family, anti-tradition values. And so in Egypt, you know, people claim degenerate art as a cause and, you know, incorporate sort of surrealist strategies into their way of approaching the problems faced by intellectuals in the Egyptian context. I mean, one thing that I found personally so interesting about, you know, what I learned about Egyptian surrealism in this exhibition, which was, was that the artists, they weren't signing on to some kind of exciting movement and, you know, riding its coattails. They were actually taking it as a form of technology or a tool that they could apply in their own particular circumstances and take ownership of. And there's this great quote, by the Egyptian artist Yusuf al-Afifi, where he says that surrealism is, quote, nothing more than a modern technical term for what we call imagination, freedom of expression, and freedom of action. And the Orient has been the home of all of this since time began. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, they were pretty controversial. They, they were a small group in a way, but they were attacked, you know, for being kind of foreign agents, you know, that, that you are, there. you know, how are we going to build the Egyptian spirit when you guys are looking to Europe? It was kind of the reaction from a lot of conservatives and also for being anti-religious, although they came from a variety of religious backgrounds. And, and one of the responses they said is, you know, like, surrealism is not the name for the imagination. The imagination knows no country. Ancient Egyptian art is surrealist. You know, Coptic art is surrealist. So they're like, you know, synthesizing things, you know, they're not just taking from the example of Paris surrealism, a painting that I really like in the show by Laurent Marcel Salinas called Birth from 1944. And I mean, I could imagine this painting being as iconic as something like Salvador Dali's The Persistence of Memory, The Melting Clocks. It's this bloodshot eyeball surrounded by, by tentacles. It's this kind of like uh, modern token. And that looks very like surrealist in the classical sense, but they really were bringing in their own context. They were very concerned with social issues. You know, um, they were very concerned with the position of women in Egyptian society. The tortured female body appears a lot as an image of that concern in their work. And so another place that had uh, really interesting expressions of surrealism was the Caribbean. How did it get received over there? I actually think that it's arguable that the center of the surrealist influence on reality, when all is said and done, if you look back at history that we know right now, would be in the Caribbean. 
It's in Martinique, the French colony, that um, a group of student intellectuals take up, among other things, surrealism and use it as an inspiration to create what is a pretty important movement of anti-colonial ideology, which is negritude, this idea of a black cultural identity. One of the intellectuals is most associated with is Aimé César, who's a poet, and he um, wrote a book, a notebook of a return to the native land, which is sort of a surrealist poem, although it's, it's essentially a, a scathing description of colonial life in Martinique. And his wife, who was an intellectual in her own right, Suzanne César, also was inspired by surrealism. And actually in this particular exhibition, there's a quote from her that welcomes us into this show. Surrealism is the tightrope of our hope, she wrote. So there was a way that surrealist ideas about like smashing the inheritance of European rationality and embracing the other found this really interesting and productive interlocutor in the colonies. And it's, it's just, it's, it's a really fascinating story of, of translation and mistranslation, in my opinion, because the surrealists uh, look to dreams. They look to the art of people with mental problems. You know, uh, like I said, Breton started out looking at shell shock victims. They um, celebrate all kinds of antisocial behavior like suicide and so on. And they also look to the art of non-Western peoples as having a kind of, of revolutionary charge that the kind of over-refined European art that was associated with this corrupt system didn't have. And they could often do it in really exoticizing ways, you know? that they were, is this kind of a noble savage kind of idea. And so it's just very interesting that it's through that gateway that intellectuals in Martinique and across the Caribbean could latch onto that and, and find a way to see themselves and rework those ideas in ways that became this really uh, revolutionary cultural ideology. And I think that's also finally because negritude is a cultural nationalism and surrealism was a cultural politics. You know, like I said, it was always in dialogue with radical politics. And that was a little bit of a tension as like where the revolutionary energy would be located. It would be located at the level of cultural transformation or at the level of material transformation. And one of the reasons why I think surrealism as a rhetoric, as a way of talking about culture, appealed to intellectuals like M.A. and Suzanne César is because they really stress the emphasis of culture, of reclaiming a culture of blackness is a positive value against the barbaric colonial European identity that had been like thrust upon the subjects in the colonies. Fascinating that the Caribbean is now going to be the center of surrealist art history in your estimation. And I think that's very compelling. What about Japan? That's a place that is not really thought about as being a groundspring for surrealism. How is it received in Japan? Well, totally different context, but some similarities in a way. So in Japan, the main high point of activity is like around the, the late 1930s. The art in this show, I, if, unless I'm mistaken, I think is more from a decade earlier, this kind of scientific surrealism that they present. But um, in Japan, the 1930s, are this tremendous period of militarism, basically the rise of Japan's imperial ambitions mark this period. And once again, surrealism becomes a really important movement in this period as 
offering an alternative model of radicalism to what they called the Japanese proletarian art movement, which was a movement of, you know, didactic, realist forms of art. And the Japanese artists associated with surrealism were put under surveillance by the government from about 1936. And some of them were interrogated and rounded up as degenerates and as subversives. I think that it's fascinating because you you hear about surrealist artists going on the run from fascist regimes and authorities in these other places around the world. But really in Asia, the crackdown was pretty extreme. I mean, in China, there are no remaining extant surrealist paintings from this period because the artists either destroyed them out of self-preservation or they were destroyed by the police. But in Japan, there is some photographic work that was done in this period that, that remains with us. But I thought there was one really interesting series in the show where the photographers had to collaborate with people specializing in collecting rare cactuses so that they could take erotic-esque photos of the cactuses and publish them and have that go through the censorship apparatus. And it, it just shows you um, how staunch the crackdown was and what kind of devices artists had to use in order to get around it. A uh, possible reason why photography becomes so important, because in 1937, there's this big touring show, the exhibition of foreign surrealist works that tours Japan and is a sensation, really fires people's imaginations, organized by some very famous European surrealists, and as well as like local artists who identify as surrealists. There were like 350 artworks in the show, but it mostly relied on photographic reproductions to represent the paintings and sculptures. <laughs> so people in Japan were familiar with surrealism, but through photographic reproduction. And so that formed part of the way they were thinking about what it meant to be a surrealist. Huh. Fascinating. So you mentioned Mexico City and Diego Rivera and Trotsky. And, you know, I think a lot of us know that scene from the Salma Hayek movie. So that's uh, kind of ingrained in the, um, the popular consciousness. But there's a lot more that was really taking flight in Mexico at this time. What were some of the highlights in the show that you thought were from Mexico? I think these days, um, figures like Leonora Carrington and Remedios Varo are pretty much part of the mainstream of how people think of historical surrealism, as is Frida Kahlo. She may be the most famous surrealist in the contemporary imagination. But I really do think a highlight of this show is the room dedicated to Mexico, this huge triptych by Remedios Varo that is sort of an autobiographical, fantastical depiction that almost looks like a religious altar. And then this very amusing piece she did that is called Homo Rodans, which is this skeleton of what looks like some kind of seahorse-like sea creature that she made out of chicken bones and turkey bones, put under a bell jar, and then presents alongside a pamphlet where she kind of provides a fantastical pseudoscientific account of this beast. And that just looks so fresh and of the present. There is this kind of political crossroads that happens in Mexico it's, uh, you know, it has this tradition of revolutionary art that comes out of the Mexican Revolution and Diego Rivera, you know, of course, Trotsky in exile is killed there in 1940. But this show really centers a lot of the female artists who work there and who, like Carrington, like Varro, 
part of their surrealism was the way it allowed them to incorporate sort of mystical elements into their artwork and allowed them to kind of think about, reclaim a history of a kind of, you know, proto-goddess feminist kind of vibe, you know, that they allowed them to, to think about pasts where women had powers that had been denied them by the patriarchy. And it's fascinating to see all this play out on canvas. So we've talked about some far-flung locales based on you know our own geographic standing in New York City, but one place a little bit closer to home that has a big part of the show is surprisingly Chicago. What was the story of surrealism in Chicago? You know, I don't know how overdetermined this is by the entire focus on, you know, surrealism as a revolutionary ideology. Because, you know, there are other stories of surrealism you can tell. I mean, surrealism became pretty quickly incorporated into advertising and their whole books written about this. But there is a Chicago surrealist group that appears in the show, sort of at the end, we take this leap forward into the 1960s and specifically the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago, which is really infamous because um, of the police riot against people protesting the Democratic Convention, anti-war activists, civil rights activists. And there was a Chicago Surrealist group who were very involved with this. Their politics sort of elude me. They seem kind of anarchistic in their approach to things. They go from protesting the Democratic Convention to protesting a show of surrealist art at the Art Institute of Chicago a few months later, which seems to me, you know, widely varying concerns in terms of what you focus your political energy on. But one of the big curatorial discoveries of this show is that apparently, according to curators, they turned up the fact that the famous phrase, make love, not war, grew out of the Chicago Surrealist group and their agitation, which I think is just a delightful footnote and interesting um, fact about how, you know, artistic energy is assimilated into the lingo. I think it's a pretty great legacy, but I, I also think, you know, one nice little bookend, as you mentioned in the beginning of the show, how the traditional definition of surrealism and its its kind of timeline was really um, put forth by uh, Alfred Barr at MoMA. And the reason that they were the surrealist group in Chicago was protesting the art exhibition at the Art Institute was because it was organized by MoMA director William Rubin to advance that same idea that surrealism was dead. So they went and attacked the show by reading erotic poetry aloud, throwing birdseed and women's underwear at people until they were dragged out by the guards. It shows how live this topic was. I mean, yeah, absolutely. They were defending surrealism as a, as a, as a living practice. I mean, it sort of takes me back to the earliest days of surrealism when it was evolving out of Dadaism and, you know, these debates on what it really meant to be political and, and where it landed. And, you know, the communist newspapers accused them of being mystics and believing in revolution of the mind and ignoring the potential of real evolution and them shooting back. You just want to change, you know, the way the system looks, but we want to change it as deepest level and so on. You know, speaking of unexpected takeaways, the Chicago Surrealist Group is actually still in operation, which is, I thought was one of the incredible little side notes in the catalog. But we just went through this kind of wide-ranging tour of global surrealism. My goodness, yes. And there's so much more. I mean, go see the show if it's still up while you... Um, hear this because there's so many more things 
What would you say is the most interesting argument in this exhibition in your mind? I think it's that some of the most interesting art of the present is in the past. You know, I think that, you know, people complain that we're in a bad place in art history right now. And maybe we are, maybe we aren't. But um, it's such an exciting time to get to be able to to see all this stuff and to try and be in dialogue with it and figure out. I don't think I've gotten to the 10th part of it. That's where it started. It reminds me of uh, something from my old archaeology days where if you were working on a dig and you got funding, you would go out there and dig up artifacts and then put them in storage. And if you didn't have funding, you would go into storage and look at all the stuff that you dug up <laughs> when you had the money to do it. So maybe that's the kind of moment we're in now. I'm really interested, and I don't know, based on this show, what the kind of conditions for this international network were. Because as much as it is inspiring in the present, it strikes me that this is just a very specific time period, you know, Chicago surrealism accepted. Um, but even then, that's interesting. That takes place at the tail end of the 60s in that, um, you know, this is a time before the kind of post-war education boom when there were just much smaller networks of cultural production and before art had been so thoroughly turned into an academic subject. So the artistic culture the bourgeois culture, which is not even a, a phrase that has much meaning in the present context, that they would have learned as students or as respectable members of society is their national culture or at its outer limits, a European culture as a civilized thing. And that's what surrealism is rejecting, is the idea of this kind of fussy cultural pretension and... It was cosmopolitan and it was international. And this was a particular time, particularly in the 1930s, with the Great Depression and the, the various kinds of political upheavals, that being cosmopolitan, being international, had a particular kind of juice. I think placing it in that time period is what I really take out of this show. You know, thinking about the very specific roots and networks that it was part of. And as much as it brings in all these different parallel histories. It seems to me that there is kind of a common cosmopolitan intellectual culture that they were in argument over. They were in argument over one thing that, you know, is not necessarily so true of the present. Hmm. A lot of food for thought. Well, thank you very much for coming on the article, Ben, as always. My pleasure. Uh, I am going to go back to the catalog and think about it for about 70 more hours. <laughs> okay, well, enjoy that. So um, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sony Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.